from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my Inner Circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, we're losing more people every year than we lost in 10 years of fighting in Vietnam. We lose more people from opioid misuse and overdose than we do on the highways or from gun violence or anything else. This is a huge, long-term, impactful event. 9-11 happened, and in fact, I've never known being a staff physician without this war. On this episode of Newt's World, I have a new novel that just came out called Collusion, which I co-wrote with Pete Early. In the novel, our main character is Brett Garrett, a Navy SEAL who was injured in a helicopter crash. Due to his injuries and pain, Brett becomes addicted to opioids. On this episode, 
I thought we'd take a closer look at opioid addiction and pain management in the military community. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Pete Early, my good friend and co-author of Collusion, Lieutenant General Eric Schoemaker, MD, PhD, U.S. Army retired, Lieutenant General Eric Schoemaker, retired in 2012 from his role as the 42nd U.S. Army Surgeon General and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Medical Command. This followed 32 years of active service in uniform and 41 years as a commissioned Army officer. We also have as our guest Dr. Tripp Buckenmeyer III, MD, Colonel, U.S. Army, retired, the director for the Uniformed Services University's Defense and Veterans Center for Integrative Pain Management. Pete, why don't you just take a minute to explain both Brett Garrett's character, but also the injuries he suffered and the consequence of those injuries. Brett Garrett is the hero of collusion. He's a highly trained Navy SEAL. When we first meet him, he's a chief petty officer who is working with the CIA to rescue a hostage from Boko Haram. He ends up on that mission making some crucial career-changing decisions. He ends up being shot down in a helicopter where he sustains substantial burns and he becomes addicted to opioids. And this is because the military has changed from just giving people morphine to giving them fentanyl pops, which are much more powerful. They go through your mouth quicker. They address the pain. And like so many of our veterans who are in combat situations who get injured, the threat of opioid addiction looms over him during the, the novel. And so we have a struggle not only with an exciting storyline, but also with his personal struggle with uh, what is an epidemic in our country, opioid addiction. One of the things that the speaker and I really wanted to do in this novel is we wanted a character who was realistic and someone who had flaws. And we also felt that we needed to address the opioid crisis in a very personal way because it's just such a epidemic on an epidemic, and it's not something we should ignore, and we wanted to fight the stigma. I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with General Eric Schoemaker, who has had a remarkable career, but his probably most important contribution was stepping in at a time when we had to really profoundly rethink pain management. The way we had been doing it had been led to a dramatic increase in addiction. He's had a career of serving the men and women in uniform in this country, trying to help those who've been wounded, trying to make sure that in general their health system gave them the optimum chance to lead a long life. Can you share with people your career in the military? I was raised in the military. I'm one of a multi-generational family of Army soldiers. I came in as an ROTC cadet. By the time I uh, was commissioned in 1970, the Army didn't need lieutenants anymore. So I went to medical school, and while in medical school, I got interested in research. So I got a Ph.D. in human genetics. In the first Gulf War, I was the chief doctor in Landstuhl in Germany, and then I commanded a hospital, and then I was brought down from Fort Detrick to command Walter Reed. And then from there, I was selected to be the Surgeon General and the commander of the Army's Medical Command. Since then, I've retired and have come to the Uniformed Services University as a professor. 
it's been a, a real privilege to work there and to continue the work that I think is a is a feature of of this book you both have written about a, a wounded service member who, through no fault of his own, acquired a, what we would call an opioid use disorder or an addiction to opioids because this is unfortunately the preferred treatment too often of chronic pain in America. When you get up in the morning, what is it you're thinking about trying to solve? Solving this problem of what I think has become one of the most serious health threats to the nation. I think a health threat, the opioid epidemic, which is really an epidemic of epidemics. Those of us who work in this area don't think of this as an isolated epidemic, similar to what we went through in the 70s with cocaine or later with heroin. What we have now is, unfortunately, and we are learning more and more some uh, misbehavior on the part of the producers or the manufacturers of some of these drugs. We've spawned, I think, a health epidemic that will rival, and I'm not an economist, but it just seems intuitively that this will eventually rival the 1919 flu epidemic in terms of its impact on the country. We are now losing, through accidental overdoses, by prescription opioids and by its diversion or misuse or by drifting into other other drugs like fentanyl on the street or heroin, we're losing more people every year than we lost in 10 years of fighting in Vietnam. We lose more people from opioid misuse and overdose than we do on the highways or from gun violence or anything else. This is a huge, long-term, impactful event. Heroin was apparently very readily available in Vietnam. But interestingly, that was a kind of situational addiction, if you want to call it. And once they got back into the States, my understanding from people who studied this, like Lieutenant General, now retired Ron Blank, who was a former Surgeon General before my time, who studied that episode, that event, that period in Vietnam, there was really not a lot of residual use. It was almost an effort to distract the soldier from the nightmare of what Vietnam was for them, these hellacious experiences they had and the the repeated short-term tours through it for a certain class of individuals, not everybody, because not everybody who saw that experience was, was nev- negatively impacted. But once they came, came back, they didn't necessarily go on long-term opioid use. And I don't know how that was achieved. There were treatment centers in Vietnam at the time, but that experience with drugs, which was, of course, one of the features of the 60s and 70s, then was dealt with, you know, I think through discipline and policies. Uh, we had a, a succession of, of leaders through the 70s who really made alcohol and drugs and misconduct a focus of what they did. And uh, about the same time, we became a volunteer army in 1973-74. The volunteer army became married. We're much more different in complexion uh, in terms of uh, the demographics of the military today. We're close to 65 or 70 percent of, of soldiers are married now and have families. And I think it's just changed that coupled with leadership and a focus on keeping a drug-free and alcohol-limited army has changed it. I think the use of opioids then changed, especially in the 90s. When I trained as a, an internal medicine doctor and as a hematologist and took care of a lot of people in pain, chronic and acute pain, at that time, there was a, 
a real sensitivity about using opioid-like drugs, Demerol, morphine. Yeah. Uh, all of these drugs, whether they're synthetic or they're natural, are derivatives of the opium poppy or related to the opium poppy. And they all have a shared ability to both provide the soporific effects and the sedating effects and pain-relieving effects short-term for acute pain, but they also have this impact on the brain that leads to a long-term necessity to have that drug. And if it's withdrawn after a period of time that you become accustomed to it and then eventually dependent upon it, then there are some really psychologically and physically devastating effects of that withdrawal. You know, this probably emanates from a time when our brains needed a receptor and a signal, a material that would temporarily blunt stress and pain. You've often seen an animal that may have been caught by a hawk, for example, suddenly go into a freeze and then relax. And that's probably from the release of these endogenous opioids. We talk about the runner's high. These are endogenous opioids that your brain makes in response to stress and pain and relieves that for a period of time. The brain didn't put a receptor in there so that someday we would find an opium poppy and extract heroin or make heroin. Uh, there's an endogenous reason. But unfortunately, there is exists in nature now, and now out of synthetic laboratories, very, very potent drugs which cross-react with that receptor and cause the same effects that the endogenous drug, if you will, these endorphins do. When I was being trained, and up until the 80s and 90s, the attention really was on limiting that. But the perception was we were being overly cautious about using those drugs to relieve pain. And the problem that began to be surfaced was that we had too many people in pain who were not being sufficiently treated for it, especially people with terminal illnesses, cancers, and the like. And so we went through a period in which there was an effort made for us to get more comfortable and more prolific in their use of the opioids. In the late 90s as well, the accrediting bodies for hospitals, the Joint Commission uh, for Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, now called the Joint Commission, made pain one of the most important focuses that we should place on caring for our patients. And it became one of the signatory elements of a good hospital or a good health system that you were always asking and always treating effectively pain. You, if you've been to a doctor recently or any clinic, you're asked by virtually everybody from the parking lot attendant to the nurse at the front desk to, to the doc, are you in pain? And that naturally led to the notion, well, if you're in pain, let's do something about it. At the same time, we were given the impression through uh, unfortunately not really sound science that if you were in pain, say, from post-operative surgical cause or, or traumatic injury, you're very unlikely to get addicted to these drugs. The people who have, quote, sort of legitimate pain, if there is such a thing, that you're not going to get in trouble. So now we have a system that has a kind of a knee-jerk response to pain, especially acute pain. You get a soldier or a SEAL or airman who's badly injured. It has an absolutely essential role on the battlefield. I mean, as one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Uh, Tripp Buckemeyer, says, when you get your leg blown off in combat, you're not yelling for acupuncture. You're yelling for morphine. And that has an, an enormously positive effect on it, or fentanyl lollipops, or now we're using ketamine and some other things. As that acute injury 
begins to heal and the tissue begins to heal, pain then goes through a change. And the pain experts call this chronification. That for the first six weeks to several months, and it's different for different people, that tissue heals, the nerves begin to return to normal. But the pain that goes on to become chronic pain is now a brain disorder. Pain is, after all, a completely subjective event. There is no objectivity to pain. There is no thermometer you can put in anybody. You've all seen someone who's had a splinter under their fingernail seem to be in completely you know, incapacitating pain, and yet we've, we've had soldiers that run through a hail of AK-47 rounds and are wounded and yet are doing heroic things. So what's different is the subjectivity and the context of that. When that pain then becomes chronic pain, chronic low back pain, chronic migraine pain, chronic joint pain. It's now not centered in that tissue, it's centered in your brain. And it's a dialogue between different parts of the brain that are very different for different individuals. It's probably as unique as our fingerprints. Because if you put people in imaging devices and watch them while they're experiencing discomfort, it's different for every human. But there seems to be several areas of the brain that are deeply involved. One is emotion. The other is memory. Think about this. A child who goes to a doctor to get a vaccine rarely cries the first time. They cry the second time when they see that white coat because that's the memory and the emotion talking to one another. This becomes part of the fingerprint of our pain. We rarely, in the military environment, but probably in in the world at large, see chronic pain as an isolated thing. It's usually combined with post-traumatic stress or depression or even traumatic brain injury, which through concussive injury, you rarely see or very unusual to see chronic pain isolated without psychological or other physical problems. So your character has had burns. He's lost friends and colleagues in combat. So his memory of his injury and this pain that's residual from that is embedded with memories and a fight or flight response that occurred from combat. We can't approach that with just a single drug. On top of that, we now know pretty convincingly, and this is, I think, universally accepted by people in the pain world, that although we in this country use chronic opioids frequently for chronic pain, there is little or no evidence whatsoever that chronic opioids have any role in the treatment of chronic pain. In fact, there's a subgroup of people with chronic pain who actually get worse when they get opioids. It makes their pain worse. We have no long-term studies that show that chronic opioids, even though, as I said, you know, here we're, we're, what, 7% of the global population is using 90% plus of all the prescription opioids in the world in this country. You don't see this in Europe. You go to Sweden or Germany or places, I'm told by friends, they don't understand what we're going through because they don't use this. If you've not read Sam Quinones's book, Dreamland, I really strongly recommend it. It's an astonishing book. It is, because it really explains this contemporaneous use of opioids for pain in young athletes, in the battlefield and other places, with now the insertion of black tar heroin coming out of Mexico that El Chapo and other people uh, benefited from in a very unique business model that brought very cheap opioids to every community, rural and urban in America. So now we have another kind of epidemic of epidemics. 
This is devastating Appalachia. We're working with uh, folks at West Virginia, which is really at the epicenter of this, but, but Southern Ohio, Southern Indiana, Western Pennsylvania, Western Maryland, Western Virginia, as well as West Virginia, are really now in the clutch of a really, really profound state and nation-changing epidemic around these opioids. The thing that's astonishing in Quinones' work is both how human he makes it. I mean, it is like a novel. And how he intersects poverty in places that have no future with changes in the 90s and the degree to which we were willing to give people uh, opioids with the Mexican development. And it's one of the great studies in entrepreneurship because there's one town in Mexico that figures out, that has about three or four guys who figure out that you can take the pizza delivery system and turn it into a delivery program for heroin. And you eliminate 98% of the risk of ever getting picked up by the cops. And so they gradually go from town to town, establishing people in an apartment who have a phone, and they basically go around to the right places and pass out the phone number and say, when you need to buy some call, we'll tell you which parking lot we'll meet in. What Quinones does that's so astonishing is he takes three or four patterns, shows you how they weave together, and this is why I'm a historian. You could never theoretically design this. This is an organic development that is just astonishing, and which led to, and I think you're right, one of the great surprises to me as I got into this six or eight years ago was that you have a crisis of this scale that we can't come to grips with. We're enduring it. We're gradually, piece by piece, starting to respond. But you would think if we were losing this many Americans every year, that there'd be a dramatically higher crescendo. I'm glad to hear you say that, because I think many of us working in this area are absolutely baffled as to why we have not identified this. I mean, we went through a very prolonged period that we just could not get people galvanized around it. We started the work in the DOD about 10 years ago with this report that came out about a year before the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, did theirs. What we realized was, number one, we become overly reliant on interventional procedures, surgical and otherwise, or opioids. I took a trip out to San Diego to talk about this a couple of months ago, and I sat next to a woman just by chance, struck up a conversation, she was in her mid-60s, was going out to visit her 95-year-old mother. And she said, it's interesting the work you're doing because um, the last time I took this trip, my mother had had a hip replacement. She was 92 or 93 at the time. And they sent her home with a big bottle of Oxycontin. And like everybody her generation, she dutifully took her Oxycontin just exactly as, as they said to. And then when that ran out, she got a refill, and eventually she became an addict. And we realized that my mom is now addicted to OxyContin. We went back to the rehab center and said, what do we do? And they said, well, you can admit her to the rehab center, and we will taper her off, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. You can put her into a, a street program that the city of San Diego runs, you know, along with established addicts and pushers and the like, or you can do it at home alone. And so they did it cold turkey at home. She said it was the worst four to six weeks of her life. She had a 92 or 93-year-old mother going through cold turkey withdrawal from opioids. This is a random stranger I meet on a plane. This is happening 
in so many households and so many communities. When we come back, General Schoomaker, Pete, and I will continue our conversation on pain management and about how the military is starting to approach pain treatment differently. say was the turning point, if there's been one, in moving us away from a highly addictive approach towards a substantially less addictive approach towards pain management? I think that's a great question, Mr. Speaker. I mean, for me, it would take place around 2010, 2011. And I think that the publication of the Institute of Medicine study, Pain in America, or now the National Academy of Medicine, and all of the work that's followed that. About the same time we in the DOD began to work on this, uh, we saw some of the same things that the nation as a whole was seeing. The work now that is spread into the VA, in fact, the VA had a lead on all of this, the Veterans Administration. You're looking between the military health system and the VA health system at about 20 million Americans. That's a sizable slug of America. And I think we're at a tipping point now, back to this notion of how can we keep ourselves healthy and strong, not wait until we've fallen off the cliff of illness or disease or mental health problems. We did a uh, podcast with uh, Congressman Patrick Kennedy, and he talked about his father's generation. And I think this was a big part of it, is that initially the thought was, it must be a weakness. It must be a problem for people who are inadequate. And so I think for over a decade, the country couldn't come to grips with the fact that it was the country. And I think we as a medical community, and I'm a part of this, and probably gave as much opioids in my developmental years as anyone did, thinking I was doing good by these people. We suffered from a, a misunderstanding about what it is. And that's been coupled with a business model of medicine, which reimburses a physician or a clinic for you know, a 15-minute visit and, a, and an opioid prescription. But are you aware that we have eight or nine evidence-based approaches to chronic pain that are as effective or more effective and not dangerous that we can't get reimbursed for? Medical massage, yoga, acupuncture, mindfulness meditation, music therapy, chiropractic therapy. These all now have very good evidence for their use. They're as effective as anything else out there right now. And recent uh, National Academy meeting that will result in a publication reviewed all of the literature on pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic modalities in approaching chronic pain and concluded that these modalities that I just mentioned are as effective or more effective than anything else we have out there. Everything is about moderately effective, but very good yoga trials now have been conducted. Very good acupuncture trials have been conducted. And yet, we don't have a business model in American medicine that allows me to say to a patient, hey, listen, I want you to go and get medical massage or I want you to get acupuncture. Even my wife, who has had acupuncture and yoga and everything else throughout these years, and or I, who go to a medical massage therapist, I can't bill TRICARE, my healthcare benefit program for that, because it's not covered outside the gate. I can do it in our military hospitals when I was a certain general. I can try to build a network internal to our brick-and-mortar facilities to do that. Very tough to do that because the whole culture needs to change. I think one of the things that will help us is if we start looking at pain 
an injury differently than we've, rather than medicalize every pain that we have, aren't you in pain right now? I am. I mean, I've got this knee that's bothering me and my low back pain over here and I've got an elbow. I mean, nobody is free of some degree of pain. And having talked to people who are instrumental in National Football League and, and other sports will tell you there is no group of people other than maybe soldiers, warriors, who know that they have to work with some level of pain and discomfort. I think what you saw here was someone who, for legitimate reasons, received an opioid after a battlefield event and probably during recovery, but at some point didn't transition what we would like to see to non-pharmacologic assistive modes that could be tailored to his own needs. Listening to you is fascinating. Now, I've been told, and research seems to suggest, that PTSD is highly treatable, that it's often caused by being shot at, by losing friends, by having a difficult time coming back and relating to other people, emotional depression, etc. The studies I've seen suggest that it is treatable purely through behavioral cognitive therapy, not medication. Whereas... What you're talking about with chronic pain, everybody talks about medication. It sounds to me like you're also suggesting that we need to help wean people off of uh, medication by providing good mental health services. I think, first of all, let's be very clear. I'm not an expert on PTSD, but we can't be around military and veteran medicine that that you aren't. My understanding is probably the event in life which is most predictive of developing PTSD is actually rape. You know, over 75% of women and men probably who are raped will eventually develop PTSD. Now, it will take on average sometimes 10 or 15 years before they'll identify it and recognize this. But there's a very, very close relationship between violent crime, personal violent crime, especially rape, and developing PTSD. Many, many people who survive Katrina or any of these tornadoes that we're seeing right now. I even worry about border patrolmen who were involved in separating families and things like that at the border. I think we're going to see problems with PTSD. Policemen on the street, firemen on the street, first responders, anyone who's exposed to a life-threatening, life-changing event like that is going to experience what you and I, all of us experience transiently, but can become established as a longer term disruptor of our life. Anyone who's been involved in even a minor accident, motor vehicle accident, experiences post-traumatic stress. I mean, haven't you noticed after you've had a fender bender or something that for a couple weeks afterwards, you're always hitting the brake, even if you're not driving the car or you're grabbing onto something? That's the fight or flight reaction of post-traumatic stress. We all experience that. But when that becomes well-established and that fight-or-flight dialogue in our brains gets locked in, we suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because it begins to disrupt life. We, we have avoidance. We don't want to be around where that is. People who have been in combat or people who have been on you know, uh, IED alley or something, they, they don't want to be in that environment. They don't want to be enclosed. Uh, they have intrusive thoughts, maybe like your character, and sleep problems. They have irritability and ease of anger. And what have soldiers and sailors and others done since the beginning of time to get sleep? They drank alcohol. I mean, my generation, my dad's generation of, of soldiers, 
always had a couple martinis every night. And, you know, I mean, as a survivor of World War II and Korea and, and Vietnam, but especially Korea, I think my dad and his generation came back with some terrible experiences that they used alcohol as a, a solution for, even therapeutically. So, yes, I totally agree with you. I think drugs have their place in the treatment of PTSD and others when it comes to short-term help with sleep and the like. But the long-term, there are some established therapies now available to reset the nervous system, to expose people cognitively to what they've experienced, and then to work through what those symptoms really mean and how they can work through them. Absolutely. And remember, just like your character in the book, these are often overlapping with other problems that they're dealing with that are in this mental health kind of mixture. And again, our business model, unfortunately, in medicine is too often fragmented. What we really need is a transdisciplinary team-based approach that uses many modalities. I might find I'm very amenable to yoga and acupuncture and and medical massage is wonderful for me. But other people may not find that as effective because of their own unique experience. We know there are certain types of people who catastrophize about their pain. One of the real benefits of mindfulness meditation, which is based in the present, let's move away from thoughts of the future and the past to the present, is to help us with this catastrophizing. Hey, I'm always going to be in pain. I'm never going to be normal again. I'm never going to be able to, to play with my kids on the front lawn. Suddenly my mind is racing into this disastrous kind of place I'm going to be. Those catastrophizing thoughts maybe need to be managed with mindfulness meditation, which has been shown to be successful in both helping PTSD as well as chronic pain. And sometimes people who catastrophize like that are not as well treated with acupuncture for whatever reason. We don't know why. We need to start focusing on how do we keep ourselves well. And a lot of the techniques I've just talked about really ought to be applied in our well state or partially unwell state to help restore us. You've noticed in the last two or three years that life expectancy in the United States has dropped for the first time in 80 years. Part of that's due to the opioid problem. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Preventive Medicine down in Atlanta, tell us that a, a sizable chunk of this has its origin in pain and how pain is managed and how people drift into using these drugs, illegal and legal, uh, as a consequence of that. So let's go back to the source of this, which is a transdisciplinary approach to the mental health problems that are comorbid with chronic pain to the problems of PTSD and TBI and other things. Let's use a team approach that asks the question, how can we relieve your pain most effectively that's gonna be best for you? And if some of that is an existential crisis that you're going through that attends your pain, then let's address that at the same time. Criminalizing opioids alone is not gonna be the solution to this. Unfortunately, that's where we've drifted on this whole event. And we have this residual that Mr. Gingrich brought up earlier, which is that we still have this dimension of this is a moral failure. We don't want to give them Suboxone. Even those that are addicted, many of them say, I don't, why am I using another drug to treat the drug I'm on? Well, because that drug is going to keep you functional, and it's going to keep you out of trouble. It's going to allow you to go back and have a job. It's going to allow you to stay together with your family. And I think... To go back to your question, what would a 36-year-old veteran go through today that was different? 
I'd like to think because of the work that we're doing that we're trying to that we're starting to change the culture that would ask that veteran from the get-go. Okay, let's let's look at all the dimensions of this. Wait a minute, you telling me that you lost friends when you got injured? How is that playing into what's going on with your pain and what might be going on with your wanting to be sedated from that from that whole experience? And and you have a dimension too of being withdrawn from this social environment that was so, so supportive. What can we find that will provide you with that social construct again that's going to be supportive of you, or at least for you to acknowledge that? I think that's the idea of a team-based transdisciplinary approach. And I'm pleased to say the VA is taking a very, very active role on that. their whole health approach that says, let's look at mind, body, and spirit of every veteran. Let's make life something for you that you can aspire to goals, irrespective of your state of health, of your age, of your gender, of your experience in uniform. And by the way, this is something I've always felt, why don't we leverage the things the service taught you that were positive that you can apply to your veteran status? All the pride you took in serving the nation, how can we apply those things to skills that you can use even now as a veteran? When we come back, I'll be joined by Dr. Trip Buckenmeyer, the director for the Uniformed Services University's Defense and Veterans Center for Integrative Pain Management. Dr. Chester Tripp Buckenmeyer III. He's a medical doctor, colonel in the U.S. Army, retired, director for the Uniformed Service University's Defense and Veterans Center for Integrative Pain Management, working with the Department of Military Emergency Medicine, and a remarkable pioneer in the development of better approaches and greater opportunities for people to deal with pain in a way that does not cause long-term damage. What we really would like to hear from you, doctor, is... In the modern system, as it's been evolving, what would happen if you had somebody who is significantly burned in a combat environment and you are medevacing them and then getting them to a burn center? What would the experience be? My focus has been trying to enhance pain management on the battlefield, which in 2003, when I first deployed, just a few months after we had launched in Iraq, Myself and many other colleagues were somewhat taken aback and shocked that we were applying a 19th century solution to pain management, morphine, in a 21st century conflict. And literally at the time, that was it. And it's been essentially the only medication that has been used out on the battlefield to great effect. I'm not, if you take away from this interview that I'm against opioids on the battlefield, that would be a mistake. I would hate to deploy as an anesthesiologist in this environment, which I've done both to Iraq and Afghanistan, and not have these tools. I think the problem, just like it's been for the rest of the country, is our thinking in the medical profession about pain sort of ended with the development of morphine. It was certainly used to great effect in the Civil War. And it's interesting that when you read that history, you'll hear about soldiers' disease Soldiers after the Civil War with horrific wounds becoming dependent on opioid and becoming what they called back then opioid eaters. And every conflict since, that same scenario has played out. 
What's different about this conflict is the fact that many patients who never would have survived in conflicts of the past are now routinely surviving with uh, one, two, three, four limb amputations. Less than 10% diet of wounds rate has been achieved by your military, and that's historic. Never before has a military achieved that level of sophistication. And in fact, our ability to take care of casualties, literally building a, an intensive care system on the fly, where the new watchword has gone away from stabilizing a patient for transport to providing just enough stabilization to get them to the next node in the chain, has really made all the difference in their survival. But it really pointed out the fact that more people were surviving, the number of healthcare providers in this chain that were interacting with the patient, the flaws that we had in our ability to actually manage their pain, particularly if we're only relying on opioids. This whole question of pain management and the way it has evolved as we think about it, that uh, there was a period there where apparently, particularly in the 90s, if, if somebody told you they were in pain, there was a general consensus that you should deal with it pretty aggressively, even at the risk of addiction. And now we've seemed to have shifted gears pretty dramatically in looking for alternative techniques for managing pain. And I know that that is one of the areas where you have really specialized and done a great deal of work in looking at the nature of how the medical system has shifted its thinking about pain and how it's looked for a series of alternative ways of dealing with things. We were desperate for other options. And in fact, prior to 9-11, I was finishing up my medical training at Duke in a new area of medicine. It's one of the newer specialties in anesthesia called acute pain medicine and regional anesthesia. And so I was at an institution at Duke, one of just a handful at the time that were placing what are called peripheral nerve catheters using local anesthetics. Local anesthetics like Novocaine that you get at the dentist have none of the downsides as far as the sedation, respiratory depression, dependence, nausea that are associated with opioids. My boss at the time, Colonel Jack Childs and myself, we were trying to figure out ways that we could more efficiently manage patients with fewer people. If you recall in the first Gulf War, we deployed these massive field hospitals and after that conflict, 300 hours and 300 patients, the line officers were saying, look, you guys cannot bring that much stuff. You have to become more efficient. And fortunately, technology was going to make that happen. And so from an anesthesia standpoint, we were trying to develop a way of providing anesthesia for the common wounds that were happening. And actually, burns are not that common. Uh, in this war, of course, it's been more limb injuries because of the IEDs. These regional anesthesia techniques, particularly with a catheter, when you've blown off a limb, I can turn that area of your body off, providing not only a surgical level of anesthetic where a surgeon can work on it without the patient responding, but then between operations and during the evacuation flights, I can provide a continuous infusion of this local anesthetic that has none of the downsides of an opioid. And so it allows far less utilization of an opioid because oftentimes these patients have multiple injuries that require treatment. But for these main injuries, it was a, it was a real advancement. We actually took this technology early in 2003 to Iraq. In fact, that was the first time I was deployed to demonstrate 
that we could actually do this. And I, I want to just make sure you understand the stage. In 2003, when I just graduated a few years ago from Duke, 9-11 happened. And in fact, I've never known being a staff physician without this war. There were probably only five institutions at best in the United States that were doing this. I actually was able to bring this very efficiently, this cutting-edge technology, out to what I considered one of the most austere environments you could do medicine in, in Iraq. And it was uh, wildly successful. The first patient, Brian Wilhelm, this is HIPAA compliant. He allows us to discuss it. He had lost his uh, right leg to a rocket-propelled grenade. It's chronicled in a book called Out of the Crucible. But with that first case, it allowed us to understand better that we needed to have a multimodal approach to pain management on the battlefield. We needed providers that were focused on that issue, and we needed other tools in the toolbox. And from that initial experience, I'm very pleased to say that the care that we're providing for pain on the battlefield today is vastly different from that 19th century approach we were applying when I arrived in 2003. When you talk about anesthesiology the way you're doing it, regional anesthesia actually means applied to a region of the body. Is that correct? That's correct. When I arrived in 2003 in Iraq, whether you had a hand grenade injury or a hangnail, everybody was getting a volatile anesthetic. And that's crushing on resources. Remember, we drive those anesthesia machines to provide that general anesthetic with 55 PSI of oxygen. Well, some trooper has to schlep that oxygen to these areas. In my case, I was in Balad, Iraq. One of the things we were looking at is if we could provide regional anesthesia for a number of the cases we were dealing with, again, limb injuries, and avoid a volatile anesthetic, we would have a better product, if you will, from a recovery standpoint that could move through the system with fewer resources. I even have a photograph of a a burn patient. In this case, it was a kid who burned his hand, a third-degree burn. We burn our sewage out there. It's actually quite pretty at night when all the, as we call them, turd fires (laughs) are lit off. But the the poor kid burned himself, and I did a, a continuous peripheral nerve block on him, and he's actually watching the surgeon debride his hand, and I have a photograph of that. That's how powerful this can be. But more importantly, after the operation, you have an alert, pain-free, not nauseated patient that can be a proponent of their own evacuation. And what I mean by that is they're able to participate in their evacuation as opposed to a general anesthetic patient that might be severely injured. And you can imagine the resources it takes is far greater than dealing with somebody that's breathing on their own, talking, and pain-free. And, of course, there's some patients that are so wounded that they absolutely need a general anesthetic, and they need intensive support. And what I felt I was doing was freeing up resources to focus on those people that desperately needed that attention, while some of these lighter injured people we could take care of just as efficiently but with not as much attention because of these techniques. Since we're telling war stories, I actually deployed with the British to Afghanistan in 2009 to establish the first acute pain service because the British were willing to do this. So we went out there, and I came across uh, Guy Disney, a British lieutenant who had lost his foot. 
And he was in a considerable pain, had been given a lot of morphine. And after we'd done our primary and secondary surveys and we were ready to, to get some imaging studies and take him to the OR, I looked at him and I said, when you wake up, you'll be pain-free. Now, I want you to digest that because any anesthesiologist that is able to say that to a patient just a few years ago would have to have big brass cojones. But I had this technology where I was going to block his leg, and I knew that when he woke up from that operation, that I would be able to deliver on that promise. We uh, did Tiva on him, total IV anesthesia. We didn't expose him to the volatile anesthetics. Now, it was a very busy and bad day that day. We had a lot of casualties, so I didn't get to see him immediately after the operation. But when I had finished up, I walked back there. I didn't get to talk to him again because he was on the phone to his mother, and he said words along the lines of, Mom, I had to give him a foot, but I'm okay, and I'm going to see you in a few weeks. And that was a poignant moment for me, and one of the reasons I chose him for this Out of the Crucible book, because it condenses what I've been trying to do. Here was a soldier who had just had his foot blown off, and he's talking to his mother about the future. That's good pain management. That's what this country needs. When you free a patient from the pain in a safe way. Now, we still used opioids on him, but very limited amounts because we were doing this multimodal approach particularly leveraging this regional anesthesia. And we were able to provide a product at the end of this that was ready for transport, pain-free, was not a burden on the nursing resources, and was actually thinking about his future. Much of this PTSD and depression and suicide, I'm of the opinion, occurs because we allow too many soldiers not to have that experience. They wallow in their pain. We know that pain is a significant contributor to PTSD, and it just snowballs and builds. And so months, years later, you end up with that veteran taking their life. And as you know, that's a real problem right now. Many veterans every day committing suicide. The only good thing that comes from war is advances in medicine, and that has certainly been the case for the last 19 years of conflict. It's one of the reasons I'm a graduate of the Uniformed Services University, why I think that institution is so vital to our military, because that's the repository of this knowledge, so that we're not starting over again in the next conflict. Let me ask you, the, the, the remarkable work you've done on pain and the progress you've made, you were part of the Pain Management Task Force uh, with General Schoomaker, and we had a chance to talk with General Schoomaker from his perspective. But what were the real changes in thinking and the real recommendations that you think began to move us towards a much more effective method of dealing with pain without having follow-on complications? Well, the pain task force was a top-to-bottom look to General Schoomaker's credit at the good, the bad, and the ugly that was going on in military pain medicine. The good news was that as far as a standard was concerned, we were meeting a standard for pain management that would be recognized in any system. But that's not necessarily a good thing because that bar was so low. What we really determined, and you know, mostly because of the service members expressing to us that while they were begging us for pain management and begging for these opioids because they are so effective, at reducing pain intensity, if they would have known 
what that meant to their eventual recovery and rehabilitation, they would have begged us to come up with some other ideas. Now, we've had a long conversation about regional anesthesia, but that's just one piece of the whole pie of managing pain. Pain, unfortunately, unlike other chronic disease processes like heart disease or diabetes, liver disease, doesn't have a lab test. We don't have something that we can objectively measure. We have to rely on the patient. Part of the problem is this is a disease of the central and peripheral nervous system, a part of the body that we probably have the least understanding of how it functions and how it works with new concepts developing every day. But we do know that pain is a biopsychosocial experience. What do I mean by that? Well, it certainly has a biological basis. Uh, you probably struck your thumb with a hammer like we all have, and everybody understands that pain. But when we're talking about somebody who's had a, a true trauma, the impact of their psychological state, their social interactions, is just as important as that biological stimulus, which is so vital for our survival as we move through our environment. Pain helps us protect ourselves, but these other issues are no less as important. And so we have two patients, both with their legs blown off. One of those patients has a active family support system, has good pain control, has a future that they're thinking about. Uh, that patient is going to do far better than the exact same patient from a clinical standpoint that has no social support is wallowing in their pain, maybe had poor pain management early on and, and through their course, and doesn't have a real sense of future. And so we don't measure that, right? You've been asked about your pain, probably from a doctor, what's your pain on that scale, zero to 10? And we've all been exposed to that, but all that's measuring is pain intensity. It doesn't give the clinician any idea on what might be going on in your life in terms of your activities, your sleep, your stress, your mood, what level of depression you might have, how much you might catastrophize about your pain. I can tell you personally, I've just witnessed soldiers who don't fixate on their injury and aren't catastrophizing about their future just do better than those patients that essentially get sucked into their injury and, you know, the, the woe is me syndrome. And so, We've been working very hard. One of the most important things that came out of the pain task force was that understanding that this is a biopsychosocial phenomenon and that we needed to measure better. I'm of the opinion that that zero to 10 scale, while it was a very important step forward in understanding pain, is partly responsible for the rut we're in right now with opioids because the best thing to get your pain intensity down is an opioid. I can get anybody's pain down to zero. I don't care who you are. You might be on the floor blowing spit bubbles, but that's not what you asked me to do. You asked me to get your pain to zero, and that's what we were doing early in these conflicts. We've now figured out that that's probably not the right way to approach this and probably not in the patient's self-interest. Certainly, we want to reduce your pain, but more importantly, we want to bring therapies to bear that improve your physical and emotional function. That's a new way of thinking. That's a cultural shift. And when we start talking about that 
opioids you find aren't as effective. But other things like regional anesthesia, other drugs, other techniques such as acupuncture, massage, yoga, behavioral health modification, those things are now able to compete with these opioids in a way that they've never been able to before when all we were asking was that zero to 10 scale. If you were advising our central character and what he should do, you know, Brett Garrett now has an opioid addiction. He's trying to break away from it. And you obviously have a lot of veterans who have similar situations. What are the patterns you recommend? I mean, how, how does one deal with this kind of pain? Well, the first part is just helping him understand what we were just discussing, that pain is a part of life. Uh, you know, life is pain. You've heard that before. Well, that's, that's true. Pain is a vital part of your survival. You can't move through your environment without the help of that sensation. When it becomes overwhelming, like it is in this case, you have to discuss management in terms of maximizing this function and help them understand that this burn and this chronic pain might be a lifelong issue that he'll have to manage, but it doesn't have to become a life-destroying issue. And so management first is recognizing that when you're only using one tool, these opioids, and now this individual certainly by asking the question is insight into the damage that this particular approach is causing him, hopefully it will allow a discussion about other options. And the tool that we're using in the VA and the DOD to assist us in this discussion is called the step care model of pain. The first step, this model, isn't involving healthcare providers at all. It's what can the patient do to improve their situation in terms of how are my relationships, my diet, you know, am I drinking a lot of alcohol, am I smoking, am I not exercising, am, am I actually creating conditions where the other things that might be tried can be effective. The next step on that is integrative health modalities, some that we've just mentioned, that have a very low side effect profile, but in many cases have tremendous benefit. I actually am a licensed acupuncturist in Maryland, and I have a side practice. I work for my wife, who's a massage therapist, as her acupuncturist, dealing with a lot of musculoskeletal and behavioral anxiety issues with just acupuncture. And so I know that that can be extremely effective, but not in a vacuum. The idea is not using any one modality. The idea is having a lot of providers that are bringing different things with the patient at the center and then using all of these modalities to minimize the need to use any one, like opioids, knowing that these things all work synergistically. And so, for example, my wife and I have discovered that massage and acupuncture, particularly for back pain, the most common pain that plagues Americans, is exquisitely effective because uh, she's providing me information from her massage that helps me guide my acupuncture needles. We know that from a drug standpoint, I'm not against opioids, but when you combine opioids with other drugs, one of the biggest things that have come out of this war and one of our biggest frustrations right now is the usefulness of ketamine as an analgesic, but we're still having challenges getting the FDA to recognize that ketamine is an analgesic. And so today, right now, there are soldiers at Walter Reed 
on ketamine infusions, which is an off-label use. And this uh, soldier that you're talking about today, most likely from these burns, would have been exposed to ketamine, particularly as a special forces troop. Ketamine, it's not replaced morphine on the battlefield, which it should not. But instead of just in the past, if you got morphine and you had more pain, you just got morphine. Now, uh, we usually do morphine. And if you still have severe pain, and we're talking real trauma here, ketamine is now the next choice. That in and of itself is a huge change from battlefields of the past and even right now. And so we're understanding that it's not that opioids are bad. The way we as clinicians have been using them is bad. And that to manage pain, you have to open your scope and look at a lot of different modalities. And this step care model sort of helps us. So you step from what can the patient do, what sorts of low impact integrative health things can we do, and then medications and then possibly opioids or other interventional procedures, which can be very effective in selective cases. And so it's bringing all of that to bear, and that's what the pain task force was trying to say. With your development and your focus on integrated health, which you bring an enormous background in pain management to, as I understand it correctly right now, TRICARE still would not take acupuncture, yoga, and massage as an integrated health function and pay for it, although they would pay for the drugs designed to achieve the same goal. I mean, is that accurate? It, that is accurate. And just by you saying it, doesn't that make absolutely no sense? Now, yes. what they'll tell you is <laughs> we don't have the data. And so one of the most important things that came out of the pain task force was a program we call PASTOR, Pain Assessment Screening Tool and Outcomes Registry. What this does is it leverages a $110 million taxpayer effort from NIH called Promise Instruments. And what the folks at NIH did is they recognized the morass that we have in research in that everybody tends to use their favorite scale, their favorite way of evaluating something. And so it makes the literature in pain very difficult to assess. What the smart people at NIH did is they took all the questions, let's say, as an example, physical function. A physical function battery of questions is to tr try to determine where you are on a measuring stick from somebody who's bedridden to Lance Armstrong on steroids. Now, if I was a computer and I knew nothing about your health and your physical function, I would probably ask a question in the middle of the road. What these promise instruments do with this, what I'm describing right now is computer adaptive testing. Instead of having to ask you, let's say the hundred questions that are in that physical function bank, I can expose you to those hundred questions, but the computer asks the question and then based on your answer, asks the next most informative question that figures out where you are on that measuring scale. And so while I can expose you, and this is gonna blow your mind a little bit, I can expose you to all 100 questions, but I only need to ask four to six questions. And the answer that I get is actually superior to the answer if I'd asked you all 100 questions. And so what we're doing with this pastor right now is we have a bank of eight different domains speaking to the biopsychosocial nature of pain where the patient's giving us information on their depression, their social function, their physical function, their mood, their stress, 
it asked some other things that we're very interested in, like the PTSD screener, like their use of alcohol. And it gives a very detailed summary with graphs on a two-page report that sort of gives a fingerprint, if you will, of the patient's physical and emotional state as it relates to their pain, that a clinician can then assess how their approach to their pain is actually impacting on this particular patient. I'm of the opinion that this approach is going to give us the data that we need for acupuncture, for massage, for yoga, for behavioral interventions. It's also stimulating civilian medicine. We have a partnership with West Virginia, and they are now using PASTOR and the Defense and Veterans Pain Rating Scale for help with this opioid crisis. So these products that we're using in our soldiers are actually now impacting on civilian medicine in a very positive way. Let me just say, as a summary for a second, what I'm really struck with as you walk me through your own evolution and your own thinking and the exciting projects you're working on, you're really very optimistic that in the next 10 to 15 years, we'll be in a dramatically different world of managing pain. When I graduated from USIS in 1992, the medicine that I was practicing then is unrecognizable to the medicine that I'm practicing today. And we're doing things right now. One of the exciting things was we're combining that patient-reported outcomes data with biological samples, blood and saliva. We're going to start the promise of genetics and medicine, which is taking us, we're at the portal right now to a new epoch in healthcare, where we're actually going to be using your genetics, eliminating many of the diseases of the past. Thank you very, very much for a remarkable conversation. I want to thank my guests, General Eric Schumacher and Dr. Tripp Buckenmeyer. You can see an excerpt from my new novel, Collusion, and explore the history of opioid addiction, pain management, and treatment on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. In the next episode of Newt's World, I'm joined by veteran journalist, daughter, mother, and grandmother, Koki Roberts. For Mother's Day, we'll be celebrating moms everywhere with a discussion about our country's founding mothers and Koki's book, Founding Mothers, The Women Who Raised Our Nation. Just getting through the day in the 18th century was hard. These women, they'd sometimes lose two children in a week. It was horrible. But they would still sit up at night and write letters about what seemed important to them about the new nation that they wanted to see formed. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. Everyone's listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio Music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.